Hello, this is Scott Jens. Welcome to Sandbox Stories. Hello, welcome to the Sandbox Story, which is an interview with Marge Axelrod, a true friend of the optometric profession. Marge is Senior Vice President and Editorial Director of Vision Monday, V-Mail, and 2020, all part of the Jobson Optical Group. So many of us know her, and she knows so many of us, but it's really time to get to know her. So welcome to Sandbox Stories, Marge. Well, thank you so much, Scott. It's really a, a, it's a treat to be here. Thank you. I think there's going to get a lot of views and listens to this because people really want to get to know more about you. You've been so gracious with your coverage of our industry. Let's start with this. What's the best fun fact about you that perhaps none of your friends in the eye care industry know? A fun fact? Hmm. I don't know. I mean, uh, I think that most people know about me that uh, I'm kind of a procrastinator. I live in a a world of deadlines and I'm late for pretty much everything. Um, so I try to cover that up a little bit. I don't know how successful I am at that. So that's one thing. And um, I don't know. I, I, I love uh, my friends. I love good times. I love to travel. I, I don't have a particular fun fact for you. Don't you think when you're up against deadlines all the time that you feel like a procrastinator, but maybe you really aren't? Well, um, the way I rationalize it is um, I figure I'm I'm dealing with probably 10 times more deadlines than anyone should. So if I mess up on some of them, it's because I'm doing something else that's really important. Right. So, But no matter what I'm doing, I'm late for five other things. So <laughs> I've just learned to live with it, and my family and my friends know that about me. I'd love to hear more about your love of travel. You said when you were little, you did a summer camp and then a cross-country tour. What sights and sounds and smells do you remember about those days of summer camp and traveling cross-country? Oh, well, yeah, in the Northeast, you know, eight weeks of summer camp is, is a common thing. Uh, but I had no hesitation uh, being away from home for eight weeks, as opposed to my sister who cried the minute she got on the bus, you know. But I was uh, very independent. I just loved um, being out at the lake in the summer camp in upstate New York where I was. I loved seeing the country, the state parks, uh, being out in the great wide open, maybe because I always grew up. I grew up in northern New Jersey right outside New York City. My family grew up in New York City. So I love it. It's my favorite place, but I think the, the wide spaces always get me. So uh, I just enjoy seeing other cultures. It's, it's mind-opening no matter when you do it. <laughs> when I was little, we did cross-country tours by car. We had yeah. the prototypical station wagon, and then we moved from there. Did you have such tight trips? I would do, we would do that with my grandparents um, because my, my grandfather and grandmother would take wonderful drives up to Thousand Islands up in, you know, Canada, or uh, they enjoyed the state parks too. And it was kind of a family thing when my sister and I were younger. Um, but um, otherwise, um, with my folks, you know, vacations were home. 
but uh, they love to travel too, actually. Uh, so they took their time to do that. Maybe by accident, I picked up their excitement about going to somewhere exotic. Not sure. Is there a favorite place you've ever been to? Uh, I mean, I have so many favorites. I've I've done. I've been so lucky because my job, uh, this job and prior jobs that I had, let me travel places. I started the actual plane travel late in life, later, I think, in my 30s. But um, I love Italy, can't get enough of it. Uh, sometimes I love Paris. It's just great to say I love Paris. Uh, <laughs> and I've been on amazing trips. I've been to the southern part of Spain. I've been to Ireland, Scotland, love it so much. Uh, but I love Arizona, love the desert, love Aspen in the summertime. Uh, so I don't know. I can't pick. Uh, that's a great list. You have spent time, um, hopefully more so after the pandemic, uh, with your mom and your sister. Tell us about them. Oh, well, um, my sister's uh, three and a half years younger than I am. We're very, very close. We have a very small family. Uh, my mom, who just turned 90 a couple weeks ago, uh, lives up there with them. And so uh, when the pandemic got so serious in Manhattan, where I, I have an apartment, I, I kind of packed a bag and left in in April, like many people did. I just wanted to be with family, with my sister and brother-in-law, my niece and nephew, uh, also live uh, nearby, and spend time with my mom. And it was great to have someone to commiserate with and talk to and drink a lot of wine with and watch movies. So we're very close. And my mom uh, was always sort of a stay-at-home mom, um, that she's, uh, she's got a good spirit. The more sarcastic she is, the better she's feeling, that kind of thing. We get along pretty well, and somehow we managed to make it work. I worked from her dining room table in her beautiful suburban home for months and months for the spring and summer. I started coming back to Manhattan a little more regularly in the fall, and now since the turn of the year, I try to spend the week here. And then I also have a, a beautiful place in the Hudson Valley, which is just the rural part north of uh, north of New York and, and the suburbs, and uh, really enjoy that. My friends were away during this crisis, and they didn't come home until April. Now they're back, and I hope to see a little bit more of them up there, but it's beautiful up there. Yeah. Your education resulted in you getting a degree in psychology from the University of Rochester in upstate New York. And... I think you probably don't expect it to be something that you see in a journalist, but my guess is you employ it in every encounter you have. What has your psychology background done to help you gain insight about others? Well, I think uh, it was always something that I was drawn to. I went to University of Rochester's uh, uh, a school where a lot of people are pre-med. Uh, and they, I, even though I enjoyed my liberal arts courses, um, psychology was something I was drawn to because I thought for a long time I was going to be a lawyer. Actually, that was what I thought I was going to do. Um, and psychology was helpful, just motivations um, and what, what, what gets people to do what they do and say what they say. But I did find that once I had switched gears and moved into media and learning about journalism, and I always wrote about business when I did journalism, um, I think it, it broadens your 
ability to have to, to know that people have different perspectives about things. So where they're sitting can bring a completely different ex perspective than what you might be observing or what you hear other people talk about. And I think it's just been helpful. And I would add that I combined that with my dad. My dad passed away about uh, eight years ago, but he was a salesman and he was a natural talker and schmoozer and really understood how to read a room and people. And he taught me a lot about business and what motivates people in different situations. And to, he, he would always sort of coach me, even though I was a journalist and he was selling housewares. Um, he, he just taught me a little bit more about um, how to build trust in a relationship. And I think that's super important because I think people can accomplish things if they understand what's happening from the other person's point of view. And that's where you can make progress and you can really create great relationships that way. So, And the salesperson is the ultimate psychology player, right? They're very so. adept, very chat, you know, chatty, very capable of remembering names. And that all is a means to an end. Completely, completely. And you have to hear, too, when you're trying, my dad would always tell me, when you're trying to make a, a sale, you're trying to make a deal with a big buyer, um, you have to understand what, what are his or her problems, you know. You're responsible for a thousand stores or you're responsible for two, but everything is on your shoulders. If you make a mistake, uh, if you make the right choice, can you back it up? Uh, so I don't know. It, it just helped me a lot. And whatever field I was writing about in the beginning, I was just an editorial assistant. I was just a gopher. Go for this, go for that. Um, when I started to write, it was important, whether it was men's apparel or home furnishings or shopping centers, whoever you were talking to, uh, you know, you really needed to understand what their goals were, what are they trying to achieve. I think when you write about someone's business, it's very different than personal stories. And you have to be respectful of what they're trying to accomplish. And then you have to think about people are going to read what you write. And my whole team knows this. They're going to make a decision based on what they might read that you write. Uh, so we want to be responsible about it. If something, if someone tells me something or I hear something and uh, it's off the record. I want to have a relationship that lets me be there when it becomes on the record so it can be better informed and um, but respectful uh, of what people are, are going through. Yeah, it's interesting. I think that the path to law didn't necessarily work out because at your core, you do have what your dad taught you, right? This want to tell that story in a fair way. Not that law doesn't do that, but no, there yeah. is a... There is the psychology of what does somebody else want to get out? And I think in many cases, particularly our OD friends, that's a lot of what they do with their patients is sitting across them and trying to figure out, can I get them to tell me the real story of what's bothering yeah. them? Yeah, I think um, so. And law is very, uh, you know, very detailed. Not that we don't have to be detailed, but um, I think in the end, I wouldn't have had the patience for it. I think I like the fact that... Um, I can respond to not only what somebody is telling me, but, uh, you know, I, I get energized by, if I've heard it from three people, I always joke that three is a trend, you know, 
if I hear something from three people and they all are resonating the same idea, then I think I'm on to something. And I really enjoy that. I've always I've always done that. Well, you told us about how you started writing about various businesses and your career of examining the storytelling uh, within eye care goes back 33 years now, if you can believe that. Um, can no. you recall some of the more compelling issues you've covered in the eye care industry over your time here? Oh, yeah. Good question. Well, you know, I mean, business, uh, aside from getting to know the different components of the business and the different people I've worked with, I'm unfortunate at Jobson. I've always worked at Jobson. And many of us on the senior team have worked together for 20, 25, 30 years, which is very special. But um, I would say that business when I first came to the industry in the late 80s, early 90s, it was already going through a lot of change at that time because chains were expanding commercially. Um, suppliers were getting a little more savvy about how to distribute branded product. They were getting involved in product. But I think in our vision care space, um, you know, I, I gravitated towards the supply side of the business, the frame companies especially. These were entrepreneurs at the time, and there still are a lot of entrepreneurs there, but they were entrepreneurial, they were go-getters, and they were just trying to keep up with all the opportunity they had as people were opening different kinds of boutiques and stores and dispensaries and practices. I had the biggest challenge, as a matter of fact, with optometry just because I never dealt with speaking to doctors before. I didn't have the right language. Um, I went to a, my, one of my first meetings was an AOA meeting. And uh, I, at a reception, I turned to a doctor next to me and I asked, I said, so how do you market your practice? And I thought he was going to have a heart attack because I'm a doctor. I don't market. Uh, I, I offended him. Uh, not realizing that the language I was using for people in the so-called retail space really wasn't going to work in the healthcare and professional space. I never forgot that feeling. I was mortified, and I really offended him. But I would say the people I, I've met have always been, you know, the ones who are passionate about their business, and that can be anyone. So that can be a doctor passionate about taking care of people's sight, um, how they built their practices from the ground up, or that could be somebody managing a frame company that grew from $10 million to $110 million in sales. You know, I think there's so many brilliant people that come into play, and our industry really is seven or eight industries in one, and groups in one. There's the professional side, the clinical side, uh, Spectacle lens companies are are, are are completely different in their mindset than contact lens companies who are very, very different from frame companies or fashion boutiques or opticians. So executives running a chain, it, it, there's so many different dimensions to our business. And I always come back to you really need to, our industry is under explained and under understood you know, there's a tremendous opportunity, especially in the last year and a half, I think we all see it. We have to re continue to explain and redefine and, and demonstrate the value of this complex vision business that we're in.
I have to say that one of the things that drew me to you when I first got to know you, and we didn't know each other very well, even though I'd been in the the industry for a long time, was I kept my nose down, did my thing, did my practice, did some volunteering, ran a business uh, for eye doctors, and 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 was just tr- sort of focused on the doctor and the relationship with the patient. And when I had been in the industry for as long as I had, and I started be- paying more attention to things like Vision Monday and and, and other industry coverage um, outlets. I realized that you have a unique seat. You see from almost the crow's nest view, those five or six or seven industries within an industry. Yeah. And, and, and it's fascinating because I think too few of us understand that crow's nest view. And so as you do the work you do at Vision Monday, it feels like you really make a concerted effort to cover all of those segments, the, the clinical side, the practice side, the business side, don't you? It's a very concerted yeah. effort. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I think it's it's evolved its role. I think because it started, uh, the idea of Vision Monday was uh, Robert Amato's idea, the late Bob Amato, who, who thought that the industry was changing so quickly that it needed a news vehicle. I wasn't there when it started. I came like a year and a half later, but they needed a news vehicle to just keep up with everything. Uh, and we were print, you know, we came out uh, every other week and um, the way we played stories and headlines was, you know, scrutinized by everybody. Who got the front page? Who got the second page? Whose headline was bigger? Because everyone was just trying to sort of show who they were. Yeah. Um, and then um, I think for Jobson, which had started with 2020 Magazine and then ultimately uh, brought in Review of Optometry and Ophthalmology started from scratch, review of optometric business, when it was clear that people needed to look at their optometric practice with a business mindset in some cases. Um, I think Vision Monday ended up having more um, more room to, uh, to make sure we were covering the different dimensions of the business because it was one of the few places where you could see everything kind of come together. Uh, and, um, you know, but still try to be true to each segment. Um, Laboratories is another area that uh, Andy Karp, my colleague, has covered from the beginning, and we really carved that out because they play such a huge role uh, in the market, and um, they never had a voice, really. Uh, So uh, understanding the lab world and how that works, that's another one of those micro (laughs) industries within our big picture. So I don't know. I think uh, we're very lucky. And then when we started Vmail, which was, you know, used to be just an email you got with like little ellipses typed between each story. Um, We started it, I think, in 1998 or something like that. And um, maybe it was 2000. I don't even remember when we started 2008. It was it was so different. And now it has become our first, you know, the first place that people seek out news about what's happening. And we hope that it's uh, the reliable source. We've given it a lot of different dimensions over the years as we redevelop it. But um, I I think we're in a very unique position and I have an amazing team. It's not as big as people perceive it to be, but I have a great team of committed Mm -hmm. people who do a great job and are as 
energized by the news and the trends as, as I am. So that makes it work. The last thing I want to play off of that you said is that we have a lingo, we have a terminology, and different stakeholders in the industry take that language very seriously yeah. if it's not played right. Uh, we can yes. talk about eye care industry versus vision care industry. We can talk about clinics versus stores. And I've been part of that uh, over time. I've been sort of, uh, there's a language that oh, I yeah. think is the right language. You must see that a good bit. It, tell We're me about very mindful how... of that. It's interesting you say yeah. that. We're very, very mindful of that. And mostly it's because in the beginning when I didn't really know, uh, I got my hand slapped a couple times, you know, again, not only from that one optometrist that I brutally offended, um, but times change too. But uh, I would say, you know, we always talk about eye care professionals and optical retailers. They're not always the same individuals. And we know even the term ECP doesn't really rub many optometrists the right way, but we try to group up optometrists, opticians, and ophthalmologists even sometimes in the same group. But I always feel that you have to be very careful about the language. So you'll see that when we write about things, we usually say eyewear and eye care. We usually are trying to be mindful of, you know, calling someone Dr. Smith. Uh, we, we try to be sure that we're respectful of their professional credentials. Um, just as you would be of, of an executive in more of a hierarchical business company, uh, you really wouldn't want to call someone who's a, who's a VP, a director. That would be offensive. You know, you want to be respectful. So um, I don't know. We just, like we just somehow thread the needle with that. Yeah, and there is no one dictionary, but I think the way you've played it has is, is been great. Um, as a big part of your work, you've been one of the key players in developing this Vision Monday Global Leadership Summit. Yeah. Tell us what makes this special and tell us what's coming up for your next Global Leadership Summit. Sure, sure. Um, I believe that we're coming up to our 15th summit, actually. Uh, we, um, we started these as a way for the industry to um, get to know each other. And then after the first three that we did in New York, they were always live events. Uh, after the first three, we started to realize as the world was changing so fast and technology started to come into play and upend everything, that um, talking to senior decision makers in our industry about trends that were coming towards them was just as valuable uh, as uh, trends that they already knew about in their own sector. And um, we, I think we also, not to sound arrogant in any way, uh, I think it's important that the vision care group space, everyone involved in it, needs to know that they're part of a really big world and consumers and patients and other healthcare professionals don't know about all the inside, <laughs> inside baseball parts of this world. And it's really important for uh, for optometry and vision care and suppliers and retailers to, to see what their opportunity is in the greater scheme of things. Um, because otherwise they can be, you know, they're caught off guard. They're late to the party. They uh, traditionally don't, uh, maybe not as perceived as cutting edge as, as they could be. 
and uh, those of us that have learned so much about eye care and vision care, everything from how the products are made, where people don't get enough credit for making quality, beautiful product, to understanding the optics of something, to understanding just how the industry works, why are things priced the way they are, how come they're sold in different environments, how come there's 1,700 different definitions of, of what eye care can be. So we like the summit to address big trends. So we have one, uh, because of the pandemic, last year we had to go virtual. We've had it for many years at the New York Times Center in New York. It's a full day event. We get an audience of only about 400 senior executives from all sectors of the market coming to hear these speakers. We were the first people to have a speaker talk about Twitter. No one knew what it was. People took their pen and pencil and wrote down Twitter on a piece of paper. Um, we've had the first person who put an attachment on an iPhone and showed it to be a pretty serviceable refraction mechanism. That freaked a lot of people out. So we've, we've tried to push the envelope, whether it's artificial intelligence or new forms of retail. but. It's not only an event for uh, senior executives on the business side. We get a lot of key opinion leaders now at the summit, and um, a lot of people are seen for the first time at the summit. I remember calling Alan Glazier and Justin Bazan at the time, and they were speakers because they were among the first optometrists to use social media in their practice in an, in an unusual way, and they led a new... A new development. They were they were major trendsetters. So, we happen to have um, this year a three part event. One is coming up uh, June twenty third, and we're taking a look at telehealth specifically. Uh, we think for the first time ever, uh, we're going to have optometrists in different kinds of modalities talk about how they're using it um, to deliver comprehensive eye exams remotely. What does that mean? We know telehealth, of course, spans a, a range of technologies, but we're going to zoom in on that with a great discussion uh, and some outside speakers and a view towards reimbursement in that area. Then we have, in August, one on taking a deep dive about the consumer and the patient. How have they changed through this crisis we've been through? What's changed in their attitudes? What are their priorities? How do they view health care? How do they want to interact with healthcare professionals? And then in September, we hope a real life event, September 22nd in Las Vegas, we will be able to bring people together again and talk about new business models and the idea of creative disruption. That's our theme. How can you take what we've been through and, you know, move on it? Uh, I think the speed of change is so palpable to everyone now. These are not any longer trends that you can wait three, five years to start to put into action. And uh, everyone feels this sense of urgency to bring themselves out of the, the crisis we've been in. So we're very excited about it coming up. I remember in the times that I've had the opportunity to be at the summit, some things with incredible clarity. I remember um, autonomous motor vehicle experts coming in <laughs> right. to talk to us about the future of how cars will see down the road. Um, and I yeah. remember, you know, uh, athletic 
eyewear companies talking about heart rate sensors that can be worn in glasses while a bicyclist would bike. And um, I remember the interview that you had done with uh, a, uh, I think it was Fast Company. They had the opportunity to interview Neil Blumenthal, one of the founders, uh, co-founders of Warby Parker. And in this room of people that are about their view of the eye care industry, here's another person who is affecting eye care Yes. in what he believed was a very positive way. That's and right. um, and so I encourage people to, if they can, think about um, consuming this information as it's published. Is there, for these virtual events, a way for people to register? Yeah, absolutely. If you go to visionmonday.com, or I'll, I'll provide it to you. Um, you can register for the two virtual events right now. Um, and once you register, you can watch them on demand um, for for period of time through the end of the year. And we'll be uh, releasing details on registration for the live event pretty soon. Um, but the first two events um, get you access to that. And we've had loyal summit attendees who've been to every single one of our events. And to me, it's one of the most motivating things that I work on. I work on it with Andy Karp, my colleague, Mark Ferrara, Nancy Ness, our head of marketing and events. Um, we love to put our heads together, and we want to we want to provoke people, but we love I love more than anything keeping tabs on all of these new ideas that are just pouring through uh, the world today, and it's really important because Vision Care has such a huge opportunity. Yeah, it's such an unmatched uh, event, and the kind of spurring of thoughts that come of it. Uh, gets me to encourage anybody that would be oh, willing to Thank you. spend time. It, it's really, it really is transformative. And uh, I mean, one last thing: think about the Twitter uh, uh, commentary <laughs> and and how that juxtaposes to the doctor who was offended by talking about marketing. I mean, in the year 2021, eye care practices use TikTok I to know. market themselves, and they do so. amazing things on TikTok too. We've seen those. So, yeah, yeah. no, I mean, it's uh, it's. Uh, it's very edgy, but that's very important because edgy and modern has become very important. And the vision care, yes, of course, we, we want to care for patients and make sure they're getting the best standard of care. But I think it's important that vision care and eyewear have an under better understood role with consumers of all types and broaden access to eyewear and eye care no matter what sector of the market you're in. Um, we, we see also through this pandemic a big, like a cultural revolution again that I remember from, you know, the 70s and 80s where, you know, there's questions being asked about access and um, social determinants of health. And there's a million things. And these are also motivating optometrists today. People who are coming out of optometry schools are have a, have a very you know, different kind of a view as to how they want to practice and where they want to practice and what they want to do. And I think that's just part of the modernization of, of the industry. And, and you do understand the supply side of the industry really well. And I think you also fairly talk about patient and consumer. Here's another language matter. Are they patients or are they consumers? I think they're healthcare consumers. They are. Um, for, yes. And that's right. And, and the doctor, particularly with a push of the medical model, says, listen, the products are important, but I'm delivering the most important aspect of the patient care. 
they're just so intricately intertwined that it's impossible to separate them. Are there sort of business model expectations you think doctors are going to have to rethink in order to meet this new consumer mindset in healthcare? You know, I do to some degree, and it doesn't take away the goal of wanting to um, elevate medical optometry, the practice of specialties and serving patients in different ways. But I do think that um, the consumer, the patient is a consumer and the consumer is a patient. And we've seen during this pandemic when it comes to access, understanding, working by appointment, having more time to understand what the doctor tells you and what to choose when you get to the dispensary. Um, all of these things come into play, and I think um, people do need to be pragmatic at the same time that they're uh, offering care. And also, and again, this sounds a little arrogant, but I don't mean it that way, it's not only about you not meaning you, Scott, but you, the doctor, it's about the patient. So patients want to feel that relationship. If you care about a patient and you're mindful of a lot of details and how they interact with your staff and your office and how you work with them, can they reach you 24-7? Can they speak to you on a quick phone call? Can they put their kid's eye on a, uh, in a phone and say, is this conjunctivitis or what? You know, those, those are true to the spirit of, of being a great eye doctor. Um, they're not inconsistent with that. Uh, but at the same time, I, I think you have to be mindful of, of the, the realities of operating a practice because practice models are changing. We're, we're seeing so many new definitions of primary health care out there. Why wouldn't those apply to to vision care professionals, particularly optometrists, who are primary eye care professionals. So if that's happening for somebody's family's general health care and people want to understand that better, why wouldn't it you know, play a role in the vision care space? And isn't that a big opportunity for vision care, it seems? Oh, exactly. I, I think that 10 years ago, a lot of practice remodels were looking like an Apple uh, genius bar. Yeah. Um, there was this idea, let's stand up and let's uh, check people in on an iPad if we can. Um, and we also saw the proliferation of food and drink bars and, uh, you know, casual spaces in the office. And I mean, goodness, even Warby decided to make their dispensaries look like a library. Yep. Um, and I don't know what that next thing is, but I, I think it's taking care of the patient the way we think they want to be taken care of. And then we'll see if that matches what they say is matching yeah. how they want to be taken care of. And, and I think it's also important, as, as if people are recognizing in different sectors, um, not all patients are the same. So um, an aging patient who's encountering serious vision issues that may, they may have escaped you know, for most of their life, and now they're facing glaucoma or cataracts or whatever it is, um, they do require something different. But that doesn't mean they don't want it to be modern and convenient and understandable and clear. Um, you know, and, and I think the industry, because of the way the way the industry literally has grown up, um, I think it's been complicated 
for people to access eye care in a way that's understandable or buy eyewear and get why why this product is $1,200 and this product is $300. You know, it's, it's kind of a combination of things. So I think things need to be more transparent and things need to be more understandable. And I think we're going to see that more. It's just my, I think I'm we're going to see that more. I'm with you. And back to you. You said you collect vintage American things, all kinds of things. Tell us about some of your value. Oh, well, I have, you know, I'm, I am not someone who could live in a minimalist environment. Anyone who's been to my office knows that I've got piles. I know where the papers are in the piles, but I got piles. Um, I love to collect um, pottery, vintage pottery. <clears throat> I love old tins. I like anything with any kind of graphic sensibility. And I'm just kind of drawn to the, 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s. Um, I appreciate history. I like place. I like when things are attached to a time and place. Uh, I like them when they're handmade, but I also like them even when they're not, but they just represent an era. So my house in the country has a lot of that stuff. Um, my apartment in New York has more glass and more treasures that I brought back from some of my travels. But it's just something I love. Wherever I go, it might just be a pair of postcards that I saw on a, on a square in Seville, or it might be something more complicated like a vase from Italy, and I spent a fortune on it. So it's all over the place, but I do, I do like beautiful things. And is it that you love rock and roll? Um, oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I do. You're going to ask me my favorite. I can't. Well, what them. era? At least what era? What, what are we? Are we talking about early rock and roll? Are we talking about? You know, uh, I'm a, well, you know, I grew up in the in the '60s and '70s, so I've got a sort of a soul music rock phase in the '60s and '70s, and then after that, you know, Southern California and hard rock, and through Bruce and Foo Fighters. I don't know. I I, I do love music. I Do miss have music. That's that's the hardest part to me. Some people miss theater, and I do miss live theater, but I miss live concerts um, probably more than anything else. Do you have a bunch of vinyl sitting around somewhere? I do. I do, right behind me. Uh, I've got two big piles of vinyl. I, I would never be able to part with them. I haven't. Oh. I just, you know, I love them. What was the last one you put on the turntable? <sighs> Um, well, I, my turntable is a little rocky too. I have, a, I have a modern turntable with Bluetooth speakers, mm -hmm. so I'm pretty sure that I, I might've put on some kind of, um, Bruce album and see how it sounded, but it doesn't hold up. I got it. All right. One last thing to finish. What's the best advice you've ever been given? Hmm. Uh, oh, I'm, I'm sort of thrown for the loop on that. Thrown for a loop on that. Um, I would say uh, to um, take a deep breath and, um, you know, be true, be true to yourself. Don't try to pretend that you're something you're not. And, um, you know, be honest 
but be honest with people. I, I think my parents taught me that and um, my family. And uh, I think it served me, served me well. I, I, I don't know what else to say. It certainly is at the core of what you've done in your time representing this great industry and, um, and talking about what optometry and the eye care space wants to talk about or might even not know they want to talk about. <laughs> and for that, I say a really hearty thank you for letting us tell your stories here and also for thanking you for so many of, from so many of us who, whose stories you told on our behalf. So thanks for joining Sandbox Stories been very special. Thanks a lot, Scott. I appreciate it. And to the audience, I really hope you've appreciated what Marge has shared with us. And check out Vision Monday. Until my next Sandbox story, be great at all you do.